Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 9th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Returning after a couple of days away, media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, according to the New York Times, Joe Biden returned to the White House from delivering the State of the Union astonished, astonished that Republicans had fallen into his trap. Literally said this to the New apparently this is how the New York Times phrases it. I had it and then I lost it. Where did it go? Hello. Anyway. Oh, here it is. Yes. Quote. Mr. Biden had always planned to use his visit to Florida today to warn about what he says are Republican proposals to cut Medicare and Social Security. But despite months of warning about MAGA Republicans, Mr. Biden had so far failed to make threats seem real to voters. Aides said that the president returned to the White House late Tuesday, astonished that Republicans had played into his hands, giving him a primetime opportunity to look commanding on an issue that resonates deeply with many Democrats, Republicans, and independence. They said Mr. Biden would refer to the exchange with the Republicans during his remarks on Thursday. And let's talk about Anita Dunn, senior advisor to Mr. Biden. Okay, quote, clearly having the House Republican caucus behaving the way that they are and signaling strongly they will continue to behave is going to give the president an easy contrast. What the House Republican caucus is doing for him is giving him a way to draw the contrast between what he is for, what he's trying to get done, and who he's trying to get it done for with the House Republicans. So here we are, an incredible unforced error. Uh, Like I said yesterday, they fell for it. Biden threw chum in the water, and they went crazy and started yelling and screaming. They made themselves look silly, and they have given him... Uh, an opportunity to go on the offensive exactly at the same time that not quite the same time, but around the same time, certainly in the same year as Bill Clinton turned his fortunes around in 20 in uh, 1995 by going at Republican extremism and irrationality uh, in the form of uh, various things uh, unjustly, but, you know, blaming Rush Limbaugh for the Oklahoma city bombing and, Newt Gingrich for having a tantrum because he wasn't seated appropriately on Air Force One. And then in 2011, uh, Obama setting the stage for his 2012 run by dealing with crazy recalcitrant. Well, but hang, hang on. Let's dissect yeah. that New York Times sentence. The sentence said yeah. Republicans had fallen into his trap, not because they behaved like goons and adolescents, but because they had given him ammunition to travel the country and say Republicans want to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. They did no such thing. No. They stood up and applauded him when he said, we're not going to cut this right, and everybody agreed. In fact, they were yelling at him when he was suggesting the opposite. Okay, so I think this what is just the a bad... hell are they talking about? No, this is just, he went home on Tuesday night and said, this is fantastic. They look like idiots. And well, now that's, I'm gonna that's keep very distinct it. from what the New York no, Times no, yeah, wants well, to you, say. You can't give a Straussian reading of the so the New not York a Times. Reading, it's a literal reading. Okay, no, but but, you, but 
that look, look, the Biden administration has this habit, and we've seen it many times over, of trying to manifest something. You know, it's it something that either hasn't happened, something they wish would happen, but can't make happen, and they'll just state it. And because the media is very sympathetic to the administration, the media then starts writing about the attempts at manifestation, and then suddenly it's like we did it, <laughs> and yet right. nothing has changed. So to the right. to the, I, I actually going to push back a little bit on this claim that the Republicans were totally out of order. I think their behavior was appalling. I don't want to see ever see an elected official particularly when they're there for a state of the union heckle and you know cajole and all the kind of crazy outbursts that they had we're not we're not the uk parliament which actually encourages that kind of booing and response i mean it's fun to watch parliament for that reason but that's not how we do things but let's recall that when she was speaker of the house nancy pelosi stood up and tore the president's speech in half after he gave it when donald trump was president the the democrats in congress dressed all in white and turned their backs and marched out like they are absolutely on board with histrionics when they think their side is is in the right. So, you know, for to hear them scolding Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, yes, did look like a cut rate Cruella DeVille in her getup and her screaming and yelling is appalling. I, I they they've both done this. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for the claim that somehow the high ground goes to the Democrats on this. But I think this is another example of Biden trying to manifest something that we know policy wise, A, isn't going to happen and B, isn't something Republicans ever said was going to happen. He's But he's going to go around and talk about it. He's done this before. He, he goes around and acts as if something has happened on the Republican side and they're extremists and he's going to fix it. And none of it's actually true, but we don't get the kind of stories we'd get if he had an R after his name. I think that's very fair. Um, but, you know, them's the breaks. That's how politics works. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you have certain liabilities and Republicans have a liability on that you look uh, crazy and adopt extremist policies front, then you don't hand your opponent ammunition. We people can you know cry in their beer for for a century about the injustice of tagging Republicans with extremist policies that they don't they don't actually uh, believe in, but as as some of them do believe in it. I mean, I don't know if you've yeah, seen but some this Democrats footage. believe in extreme. I don't know if you've seen too. this, like Mike Lee. Somebody has this footage of Mike Lee saying, "You know, we should really replace Social Security and Medicare with a different system," and then saying, "We'll never touch Social Security and Medicare." I mean, this is a real thing on the right. It's it, it's useless to pretend that just because politicians are too chicken to uh or you know or are actually politicians are are sane enough not to not to go around talking oh. about getting rid of the entitlements that there isn't an idea abroad on the right that has been around for a long time that this whole system is structured badly and should be replaced by there's ideas like abroad on the left there's ideas abroad on the left that now, would, of course that there are there are ideas, ideas abroad abroad. on every side and every exactly poly- which is why it's irrelevant it's a non sequitur the villain it's in the not story irrelevant. is not allow me to finish my thought the no, villain but in the no, story no, but you is interrupted not- me hold on you interrupted <laughs> me so i'm let me finish my thought it is not irrelevant politics is about what works so as but that's I say, how what journalism can- is about I'm not talking about journalism because now. the villain in the story is the New York Times, not Joe Biden trying to manifest a reality that he wants. That's what politicians do. The New York Times is reporting that Republicans want cuts and Democrats don't. No, Democrats who don't want to do anything to entitlements also want cuts. That's what happens in tropically. If nothing happens, well, they don't they're want cut them, supporters. But they're going to happen. They're cut supporters. They that would be a perfectly legitimate rationale for the New York Times to write, but they don't write that. They write a fantasy universe. In which Joe Biden makes no, doesn't say anything misleading at all. In which Joe Biden says, well, Republicans all said they want to cut entitlements. That's not what happened. They're lying to you. 
I, but I don't know why you're worked up over it. As far as the, the New York Times can write whatever it wants to write. The fact is, Republicans did fall into Biden's trap in the way that we were describing yesterday uh, by virtue of their conduct. Um, that is the bigger takeaway. They could try to manifest this other idea about Social Security, but uh, I think they gave him a sort of bottomless gift in, in their conduct. Okay. Well, look, there, it's yeah, it's yeah. useful. It's useful for Biden to point to the extremists in the GOP who've made a lot of news, and and Noah's right because the media really uh, focuses on that in the same way that I think a lot of conservatives have made hay with the squad in their heyday. You know, when the squad says something crazy, that becomes a stand-in for all Democrats for some people. It, it shouldn't because that's unfair. But that is how you're right that that's how politics works, John. And I think it's it, it although it's cynical, I think it's correct. A this point is correct that like they are if it was a trap i just don't believe that that biden was savvy enough to lay that trap but calling republicans extremists is just a classic in the democratic playbook so i don't see that as ingenious on his part it's just going back to the old standards and it, his whole speech was like a recap of he was trying to channel bill clinton it was very strange and i, I don't think he succeeded he's so old i really think the age matters here because he's trying to do this unifying thing as if the last two years and the last four years before that never happened, um, as if he didn't give a speech looking like a Sith Lord in front of Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, and if he didn't use words like Ultra MAGA and Jim Crow 2.0, like he can't have it both ways. And he's trying to do that going forward, relying, I assume, on the media aiding and abetting him and on the American people's memories being short. But I'm not sure if people's memories are that short for this. I, I agree that I don't I doubt that he's savvy enough to have laid the trap. But when they responded the way they did, he rolled with it in a way that asked them that that worked for him. He he jujitsued them. He said, hey, maybe you guys believe some of this stuff, right? That's a question demanding a response. He, he, didn't ask he descended he from the perch. Men, yeah. Yes, he descended from his from his august perch and engaged in a conversation with these people to which they responded. I'm sorry. I think it's a very different category than what happened to Donald Trump, than what happened to Barack Obama. Those things had a lot very different feel to me than Joe Biden saying, hey, here's a question. Can you answer it? To which they responded. Okay. Um, I don't know that this will have lasting value in the sense that it's going to frame the, the, you know, the upcoming political battles between the right and the left exactly as Clinton wanted to frame them in 95. That was the first go round of this effort um and it had the virtue of novelty and this is a rerun and biden is not in a very strong political position biden's polling in the low 40s uh people don't want him to run again democrats don't want him to run again he's going to run again uh he'll he'll run without uh he'll run without opposition unless something uh, very uh very dramatic happens uh and and uh you know i don't know how much he can improve his position but as long as he's on the offensive he's not going to lose ground that's one thing about this you could say which is that um uh he's pushing and they're they're pushing back um it has been his habit or was Zab in 2020 not to push like that was his political his political dynamic 
was to stay in the basement and let, you know, and let Trump yell and scream at him and then come out and then say, oh, come on, man, will you shut up in one debate and then go back into the basement, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, he, uh, that's really not going to work because he is the president of the United States. So even, by the way, if he's saying something manifestly unjust and demagogic, he's in the arena, let's say. Um, and the question is, do Republicans have any wherewithal to do what Noah's trying to do here, which is to characterize his uh, unjust characterization of their of their views, push back and throw it back in his face? And the problem is they seem uniquely, maybe even historically incapable. Uh, there are no, there is no Republican leader, right? So there's no one to do this precisely that I'm talking about. Uh, but um, you know, doing anything but like whining and complaining uh, is hard for them. And uh, and and so I, I don't know. Like I, I still think he wins the week. You know, he wins the week. Um, and if we want to talk about like substance then you know the substance is he doesn't want to cut he they they don't want to cut anything and he doesn't want to cut anything and um the trust funds of uh you know the medicare trust fund is in real trouble in about four years not 10 years social security is in trouble in about 10 years medicare starts getting into real trouble in about four years uh, particularly if we don't have you know either sustained economic growth or some version of you know if this employment level continues or if it doesn't grow like we're gonna have real problems with that trust fund it's not really a trust fund anyway it doesn't exist it's all just IOUs pretending to be a trust fund and the pile is gonna get too high in the box and the lockbox and it's gonna pop the lockbox open. And it's clearly going to be the situation, despite Paul Ryan's good government efforts to try to deal with it early so that we're not in trouble and all of that, that um, there's going to have to be a crisis, a real liquidity and, you know, good faith of the government and bankruptcy crisis before something happens. And there will be triage and it's going to be incredibly politically destabilizing, you know. I mean, while Biden every minute is proposing to throw more and more money into the public you know, management of the national health care system uh, while it's actually starting to go broke. So that would be a great thing for Republicans to argue about. But they've now been pushed into the position now of never being for any form of experimentation in doing something about the entitlements crisis. Republicans ever going to say we should raise the retirement age by a month, by a single month after what just happened this week, for example? How do you save Social Security? You raise the retirement age to 68. The, you know, the uh, life expectancy in the United States went down because of COVID, but it's basically now close to 80 or a little higher than 80. We're paying people for 15 years when they when they basically put in enough money for two or three years into the into into their Social Security accounts. We can't raise the retirement age. You're not going to be able to talk about it now, are we? I mean, when people are, the new the Washington Post editorial board said, you know, hey, let's be serious. These programs need to be reformed. 
but they're doing so in the absence of anybody telling them to do that, which is probably the only reason why they're doing it, because the partisan incentives to oppose Republicans don't exist on entitlement reform anymore. So they're free to actually now the truth can be told. Um, doesn't mean we're going to do anything about it. I'm reminded of the popular discourse. Just do what's popular. This was like David Shore reminding Democrats, hey, you know, they're do the stuff that's popular, not the stuff that's unpopular. Reminding them that all progressive wish list policies are deeply unpopular. But doing what's popular is also suicidal. It's not popular to see to your national defense. It's not popular to engage in preemptive strikes on targets that are engaged in active preparations to attack American military assets abroad. But it's sort of the sort of thing you need to do is just basic hygiene. It's not popular to reform entitlements, even though we all know they're going to go broke in the space of four to 10 years, as you say. But it has to be done, because if you don't do anything, you're sanctioning the worst case scenario. The press doesn't call out the worst case scenario, obviously. They're in bed with Democrats. It's quite clear. I'm worked up this morning because of this New York Times fact check of Joe Biden, which goes out of its way to contextualize into oblivion every single thing he said that was actively misleading. Okay, let's go evidence, to that. What can have you explain? You. Can you? Okay, you're now presuming that people have read what you're That's talking about. So describe, please describe to them what it is that has set you off. The New York Times is fact-checking Joe Biden's State of the Union address, and the headline that they found, well, the subhead, is the president's speech contained no outright falsehoods, but times he omitted crucial context and exaggerated some of the facts, which is very charitable. Eight times, no fewer than eight times, he determined they determined that Joe Biden said some things that lacked sufficient context. Some things were just misleading. Others lacked evidence. This is a very, again, charitable way to describe deliberately dissimulating. This 12 million jobs number, the idea that Joe Biden has presided over the creation of 12 million, 12 million jobs is not a new thing. It's been fact-checked to death. The White House is aware it's misleading and has been fact-checked in major newspapers and continues to say it. That's not just misleading. That's deliberately attempting to uh, shade the truth is one very charitable way to say it, in my, in my view. I would also call it lying. I mean, the truth is it's lying. Joe Biden's claim that you can shore up entitlements with a one-time tax hike on corporations and incomes uh, over $400,000 is not true. It trades on the public in, uh, uh, public's general ignorance about this issue, which suggests intent, and the intent being malicious. He said that he, you know, he's taking credit for the, the Title 24 um, expulsions of migrants, right? And then calling on Republicans to pass his border security provisions. Now, that does lack context. The context being that all 50 Democrats scuttled every border security amendment they introduced. And there were, in the there were a couple 50 Democrats in, in the, the Senate. Senate when they were debating the Inflation Reduction Act. Joe Biden has tried to sunset Title 42 and has been blocked by the courts. So the context is they're taking credit for something they actually tried to stop and overturn and then challenging you to do something. And when you try to do something about it, they don't like and they scuttle it and they overturn it. So the context is that you were misled deliberately. Well, that's and on, the context. On... And the fact that the New York Times and these two New York Times stories are deliberately trying to advance a democratic narrative at the expense of the truth, at the expense of their very mission statement is repulsive. It's well, an application the... of their responsibility. The the border the the border issue in particular is what I think 
drew the most um, hoots and howls from the from the right side of the aisle during the speech. And it was when he held up the parents of someone who died of an opioid overdose and started ranting and raving about how he's going to stop the fentanyl crisis. That's directly linked to his absolutely lax border policies of the last several years. Everybody knows it. Everybody's been raising alarm bells about this. The cartels are basically moving fentanyl over the border openly. And people have been saying to the Biden administration, this has got to be fixed. And so to stand up there and to sort of take claim that he's doing all this when we know, in fact, that the reason that the fentanyl crisis, which is huge in this country, it's killing lots of Americans. There's a lot that could have been done uh, before that. The other thing I'll say is that, um, I mean, it's what it's bad enough that they're doing this, uh, although not surprising for a Democratic president. But for someone like Joe Biden, whose entire history is been, uh, you know, kind of massaged by the media to say that he's just exaggerating when he's flat out lying about in personal stories and political stories and what he claims he did educationally for himself. He has lied relentlessly his entire political career and gotten away with it. So the fact that, again, if he had an R after his name, that would be and, and they did this with Trump. They're like, he's no known for lying and exaggerating, but they never called these things. He It needs context. So that I'm with Noah. It's, it's enraging to see that kind of gentle kid glove treatment of someone who, who knows he can get away with saying these things and no one's really going to fact check him. But you guys don't remember the Obama years? This was every day. See, the wise I mean, cynic I'm, I'm on the cured. podcast. <laughs> I'm cured of my propensity to out, for outrage over this kind of thing by, by the Obama years. It's true. It's like a, it's, it was like an inoculation. <laughs> I, uh, I still think that um, you have to live in the reality you live in and the reality you live in. Uh, Republicans acting rude and crazy is more harmful for whatever reason than when Democrats act rude and crazy. And it's particularly harmful for Republicans to act rude and crazy right now because uh, the Democratic game plan in 2022 was to use Republicans being rude and crazy as a weapon against them, and it worked. And and it's, it's now in the playbook. It worked. And there's no reason to think that it won't work again. It's not like, oh, well, you ran that play in 2022. Now we can, you know, if you know that the play works then you're supposed to do something to negate its effect over time so that it can't hit you again and they're w walking right into the buzzsaw. Okay, but there's something again. different. There, there is something different this time around. And that's that and I off and I wonder if maybe the 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 puffing up of Joe Biden and how amazing his speech was and all that, which we've seen before, obviously, but but uh, is so annoying this time, is that if, if everything he claims for himself and his, and his administration is true, then why isn't he more popular even among his own party? So like yeah. there's a sense in which he's doing it. He's running the same playbook. But in fact, he's not his numbers are terrible. His numbers are terrible, even among Democrats who say they don't want him to run again. I mean, that number grows month by month. So I wonder if it's a kind of, you know, it's almost foolhardy to act as if the same playbook is going to work for a guy who's who's underwater with his own people. I, look, uh, when you're underwater with your own people, the best thing you can do under that circumstance is to say, well, you may have tr problems with me. Yeah, but I'm right. the only no, yeah. I, I'm I'm the only game in town. And otherwise, you're going to get these lunatics. Yeah. And that's what most of this is about. Right. It's most of this is actually politically about shoring up his own, you know, his own side. Nobody you don't expect 
a speech like this to convince people uh, or, you know, to sort of like tilt people off the fence or something like that. Right. But he the, the thing that's different this time is that you might not convince hardcore Republican voters that he's a better option than the crazy Republicans or even a lot of moderate voters. But the moderate voters are also looking at Joe Biden and saying, this guy is old. And he's like he was very yeah. slurry at parts of the speech. He would speed up and then slow down and then do his weird yeah. shouting. And there was a sense in which if you're watching him as a moderate voter going, yeah, OK, I'd still probably pick him over Trump, maybe. But if there's someone else on the other side who's half his age yeah. and and can, you know, kind of uh, present himself as, you know, fairly less crazy than the rest of his party, that. I think is a threat. So I feel like there's a, again, the age thing re- is mattering more to those moderate voters. than I think right. they might let so on. There, but the context so there, for this isn't, isn't Democrats versus Republicans. It's Joe Biden versus Democrats. Democrats are saying, well, we want another Democrat. They're not saying, well, we will want, we'll be okay right. with a Republican, which might explain, you know, perhaps where this flurry of uh, attacks on uh, Kamala Harris came from. But mm-hmm. I mean, the backdrop to that is Nancy Pelosi abdicating. It's Dianne Feinstein drawing two primary challengers under the assumption that she'll just disappear. And there is something in the water among Democrats right now and a hunger for another generation. And maybe they can make it happen. I don't know. Some of them like to cling to power as well. They have to have a, (laughs) there has to be a, a vessel. Again, perhaps that explains why you want a 40 year old failed transportation secretary who was the mayor of a hundred thousand person city um with a really unpleasant husband i don't know like i i I can't i can't make sense out of this the one thing biden can't do anything about is his age right so he therefore has to he has to ballast and bolster those things that aren't his age so well, yeah, Republicans but he could, being... he could pick a successor and announce, you know, and he could do it towards the end of his term. He could be like, you know what, folks, I've done what I need to do here. I'm old. I'm going to pass not the going door. anywhere. I know. But he could if he actually, you know, he could, under... but he's not going to. I know. I know. Look, Diane Feinstein, it's an interesting Same point. Thing, that yeah. Diane Feinstein could re- retire now. Yes. She could say I'm not running again or even like resign from the Senate since basically we are we all we know in all but name that she has Alzheimer's. Well, they weakened no Bernie Strom Thurmond, too. Yeah, they Strom Thurmond, the staff did the same thing. I mean, that you know, there's a history. Yeah, although he question. wasn't non-compassmentous right. and everything that we're hearing about Diane Feinstein said, suggests yeah. she is non-compassmentous. Perhaps, but by not waiting, they've made it more difficult. Right. Um, I mean, if she were to just bounce, yeah, under this kind of pressure, it wouldn't be. A, she wouldn't get a going away party. It would be you. You were defeated. You were you were pushed out of the party, right? Um. Anyway, it's. Uh, but I mean, you're right, and I, I, I said this. I keep saying this that that the the thing that is the most important about the DeSantis challenge to Trump is age. And I know Abe thinks that Trump doesn't read old, but I don't agree that he will read old. And he can say, you know, when, you you know, when I was two, you know, you were like at Studio 54 and I was two. And, you know, when you were, when you were at Studio, when you were at the age of Studio 54, I was in Iraq. What were you, you know, and you were saying that AIDS was your Vietnam. Like there's all kinds of stuff there 
And yes, if there were, if Biden, if there were such a thing as a challenge to Biden on the basis of age, that would be a very interesting thing. First of all, you know, no one has ever defeated a sitting president uh, who didn't quit, right? I mean, just Lyndon Johnson quit. Uh, but no one's ever defeated a sitting president. Teddy Kennedy didn't didn't beat Jimmy Carter, who had you know the worst numbers any president had in his fourth year, and uh, whatever. Uh, you know, so that's very hard to do unless he quits, and then I don't know. I mean, who knows? You know, as uh, as Mark Halpern said in our show last week, who are the who polled the best next to Biden? If you ask Democrats who they want for president, it's Elizabeth Warren, who was 73, and Bernie Sanders, who was 4,822. Well, and I should they're, add they're that, not they're not they're not looking for youth. And and look, I mean, Reagan had terrible polling numbers in his first term too. Like the polling numbers alone aren't enough um to say that, you know, he's toast and he should shuffle off. But but I I don't know what the the plan. What was the actual takeaway plan from his State of the Union? Like, what was the big policy? I mean, I Give watched teachers it. Teachers a raise. I, there was it was so like there was something and about luggage, <laughs> like and luggage. hotel fees. Yes. <laughs> Make sure kid, you don't have to pay fifty dollars to have your kids sit with you on a plane. I just He'll it, veto the thing that will never happen. That was my other favorite thing. <laughs> if you send to me a bill that enshrines you know whatever it was like that 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 enshrines anti roe v wade i'll veto it the senate but, I mean, is democratic no such bill is ever coming to his desk i i mean that's all that, that stuff that's why i said i didn't think it was a serious speech and that it was kind of risible but that but, laundry list of yeah. like you know consumer issues that he was going to resolve it's almost like his trying to fix the pain of the economy by other means. Well, like he's not a concierge at a fancy hotel right, who fixes like your that. Right, yeah. the president. Right. Like, fix the economy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, my favorite thing is that I, when people ask me what word describes America, I say one thing, possibilities. Really? That's the word that describes America? Possibilities? How about like, Rich. opportunity freedom yeah or or like you know like most most powerful country in the world like somehow i know it's not the one if you're one word you don't get one word but uh awesome you only say possibilities word. because that is the real you know that is the progressive you know we're, we're never going to get to the place where everything is perfected therefore everything is only possibility the but present he... stinks you know are where where we are now stinks, but we always have the possibility of making it better as long as you do this. The mirror this, image this, this, of this. mirror image of make America great again, right? Looking yeah. back nostalgically or forward with utopian eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought um, when he said that it was um, uh, like a throwback to because at some point, isn't there this? There's this clip going around where he said I think almost exactly the same thing uh, in the speech. He said, um, "The one thing I say about America is." Yes. Yeah. So I got nervous when when he launched into it this time. I said, "Oh no, he nailed it." Here comes the mumble. Better than I mean. So, but he also opened. He opened with his discordant note too, where he talked about when he assumed office. All these good-paying jobs were going overseas. Factories were closed. The middle class had been hollowed out for decades, and no one had any pride anymore. We've lost our sense of self-worth. These are 
these aren't conditions that he didn't describe them as conditions that have been alleviated. Indeed, you can't. For if for, if the middle class has been hollowed out for decades, it's still happening based on your own formulation. They painted this really dour portrait of the economic landscape. Okay, well, well let's go to that. But also, a, really so, one more thing. Yeah. Also, a dour portrait of how Americans perceive themselves, because that is how left-leaning and very progressive Americans see themselves. Is like, oh, we cannot be proud of our country. That's been true my entire lifetime. But that's not true for a lot of the rest of us. A lot of the rest of us are still proud of this country and very grateful to be Americans. And he didn't signal that at all. I mean, there was no, there was not even a recognition of that. Okay, so in the polling over the last week, here's one of the mo most interesting details, right? We know the job picture is great. We actually know that earnings, what you make at your job as a general rule, has gone up dramatically. And yet, fifty more than 50% of people say they feel worse off now than they were a year ago. Or they, they feel like things are getting worse, something like that, which apparently is a very uncommon, I mean, I, you know, it's a very uncommon thing in polling. When you ask people at a snapshot how they feel about how they're doing that day, they tend to be relatively positive. They're negative. Why? We know why. Inflation is why. That is why. Because uh thank God that earnings are up, because if earnings weren't up, the immiseration of people by inflation that remember is still running at well over 6%. I mean, it's better than it was in the catastrophic point when it was like climbing up close to 10, but it's like 6%. That's like triple the inflation rate of the last pretty much of the last decade or more. Um, you know, their, their, their earning power is being eaten away and they don't feel good about it. So, Biden has a double challenge there because on the one hand, he doesn't want to get blamed for inflation, right? So he says it, you know, when he, he blamed yelled, COVID, when had that yes, fight with the yeah. reporter and he said, I'm not to blame for inflation. Well, he said it in the, the State other, of the Union too. Yeah, he blamed right. the yeah. pandemic for inflation. Right. Oh, right. And the Putin and all yeah. that. And on the other hand, he has to he has to say something about this thing which is that people right now don't feel like they are getting their they are uh they are moving forward economically so he says well that's been true for 30 years the middle class has been hollowed out for 30 years can't blame me but yeah we can blame you i'm sorry you spent six trillion you know you basically set up a pipeline pipe government pipeline that's going to spend six trillion or four four to six trillion extra dollars that's going to have an effect on how on how markets work and how all you know like it's a lot of money and so and uh, he has an incentive to make this case that is actually very negative to deflect his own responsibility a uh, negative about america to deflect his own responsibility for the president, it's a little like it's a little like um, Carter saying this country's in a malaise, and it's like, yeah, because of you, it's in a malaise. It's not in a, it's not in its own malaise. It's in a malaise because of incredible political failures on your part, where you don't seem to understand that things that you were doing are making things worse, and we're going to punish you soon. So that's the question. Like you would look at all this and look at these data, and you would say man he's in trouble like he's in trouble in his reelect but he's got to 
challenge him, something's gotta give. There's gotta be someone who can beat him. Let's well, not. So, just as it relates to entitlements, I mean, Joe Biden's reelect is is helped obviously by events of the last couple of weeks. But you know, spending four trillion dollars is a lot of money, and you got to pay interest on that. Interest is part of the non discretionary spending package, which is entitlements too. And you know, trajectory of our uh, uh, ballooning interest payments suggests they're going to outpace uh, a lot of other non discretionary items in the next decade. And we can't, we'll just not be able to make it. I mean, that's that's the debt crisis. And it's accelerated as a result of what we did in COVID and what Joe Biden did for his various wish list items over the course of his first year in office. So that comes, you know, that comes due, not in his term or even his second term, but eventually and his legacy will be on the line for it. There's this interesting idea abroad now, and Josh Barrow is one of the people who's advocating this. And I think it's a pretty interesting notion that Donald Trump isn't the guy you have to worry about on the Republican side if what we're going to be doing is talking about domestic spending into 2024. If domestic spending is the issue in 2024, Donald Trump is a little trickier because he has democratic instincts when it comes to entitlement spending, when it comes to the goodies that government hands out. Not just instincts. I mean, he said yesterday, Ron DeSantis has to, everybody has to say that we're not going to touch one day on entitlements. Like he's, it's not Which even everybody is. And I don't expect Ron DeSantis yeah. to be the no. avatar of a particularly unpopular, albeit necessary uh, program of right. uh, for legislative reforms to entitlement programs. But it's an interesting idea um, in part because I think uh, Barrow is correct that uh, Ron DeSantis's political maturation which occurred in the 1980s, um, would lead him to be instinctually more friendly to a fiscal conservative vision of how to reform America's obligations, America's non-discretionary obligations. Um, and if that is the subject of 2024, where everybody can demagogic to death, Republicans are on behind the eight ball on that one. And the only person who's willing to lie to you, as brazenly as Democrats are, is Donald Trump. I just don't see that as a. I, I wish I wish it were the case that you could say. I mean, maybe Republican voters is willing to lie to you as brazen as Donald Trump, but I haven't right. seen that yet. No, but I mean, it's just you know maybe Republican voters are going to say, "Oh my God, look at all this spending! I'm sick of the spending." But generally speaking, I don't even think spending qua spending was always the thing. Spending qua spending was something for green eye shade, budget balancing Republicans question is whether government the increased government involvement and investment and role in the everyday lives of people is offensive to the ordinary voter who wants government out of his life doesn't want and you know as i say it's the same thing like doesn't want teachers to be having secrets with their kids about how they're feeling about gender doesn't want these public employees interfering with their families doesn't want you know stuff like that that's a larger and broader thing than just spending spending is sort of like the ancillary result of the idea that government should be involved in as much of our lives as is humanly possible that's not a moral problem the moral problem is you know the it's not a moral problem it's a spending but it's a is is it sapping our initiative are government subsidies so generous that people aren't are able to permanently no longer work? You know, this male employment crisis. How is it that all these men are like leaving the workforce and can't be and aren't in the workforce? 
sort of the Nick Eberstadt men without work because they're getting subventions by other means. And that's morally staining, you know, like that. So it may be if you can, if you can make a case about all of the good, and then you have the weird thing of the, of this, you know, uh, the dignity of work, right? This is something that gives people lives value. They support themselves. They support their families. It is a dignified, it, it gives your life dignity. And then you have all this liberal progressive war on work stuff. Oh, I don't think anybody should work any, you know, we should take a break. People are working too hard. It's one of my favorite things. People are working too hard. Nobody works too hard. I mean, Yes, people are compelled by circumstance to work. To, they're only doing that because they need the money. They're not working too hard because then they're not, you know, getting enough me time. You know, and and therefore, you know, like they they're not they're they're not they're not uh, taking care of themselves. They work too hard to take care of themselves. And, you know, this kind of offensive idea that sort of work, you know, that we can all be natural aristocrats and choose when we work and we don't work. They're, I just think they're responding to economic incentives and the economic incentives is eggs. Eggs cost $18. That's the incentive. Yeah. And eggs cost $18. You know, like again. So what happened there? So what happened there? Classic supply and demand. There's a there's a there's a there's a contagion. The bird flu. Chickens are dying. You know, 100 million chickens or something like that. 58 million chickens died like over the last couple of months. They're not laying eggs, you know. And uh, and so, you know, you know what's going to happen. Like what's going to happen is as this really doesn't sub subside as a problem, there's going to be this whole thing about big farm, you know, not big farm. It's like they're gouging us on eggs. We need hearings. The egg people are choking us like, you know, there's been this huge shortage of eggs like this. Anyway, I don't know. Now, now I'm really getting far afield. So I'm going to I'm going to take a break here and talk to you about uh, increasing your uh, in increasing your leisure time, uh, using your leisure time well through ExpressVPN. What do I mean by increasing your leisure time? Well, well, you know. You subscribe to Netflix, right? A lot of what Netflix offers is not, in fact, available here in the United States or in your country because own things are sold to Netflix on contract uh, and can only be shown in certain places. And there are things you're not going to be able to watch because they're not on Netflix here in the United States, but they are on Netflix in other countries across the world. And with Netflix, because of the way it assigns uh, IP addresses to help you anonymize your browsing, uh, ExpressVPN can, can have it appear as though you were in one of 94 countries across the world. And if you, if you choose one of those 94 countries and you then can browse Netflix as though you are in, you know, India or something like that. You can see what they have that you cannot watch in the United States. This is totally above board. It's totally fair. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location because it controls where you want. You can control where you want Netflix or other streaming websites to think you're located. You just open the app. You select 
from this night list of 94 countries, you tap one button to connect. And then when you refresh the page, you're there blazing fast speeds, streaming HD with zero buffering compatible with phones, laptops, media consoles, smart TVs, all your devices. And it works with other streaming services, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, and more. So be smart, Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com slash commentary to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Christine, you and I, I don't know if no one Abe did, but you and I yesterday, I think, spent uh, a good deal of time watching um, uh, former Twitter executives uh, hauled up before this uh, uh, James Comer investigative panel and uh, talk about Twitter's behavior on the uh, Hunter Biden laptop in particular and the New York Post uh, shadow, actual banning of of New York Post on Twitter uh, until it took down or eliminated its link to to the Hunter Biden laptop story in October 2020. And then a bunch of of other matters. You had the uh, general count, former general counsel James Baker. You had the former head of content and strategy Joel Roth. You had another lawyer named uh, so I can't, Vide, maybe diversity person Videa Getty. Um, and um, what what's your what what was your takeaway? It was a very interesting, a lot of stuff going on in that hearing. Yeah. So the, it's important for people to remember that this is not, this is a separate hearing from the one that Jim Jordan and judiciary are going to conduct with regard to, um, uh, and they've actually started subpoenaing documents for this, for those hearings about uh, any collusion between social media platforms and the Biden administration on on a host of matters, including COVID disinformation and, and uh, election stuff and Hunter Biden stuff. So this is a separate hearing. Um, what struck me about this is that although everyone, uh, the, the sort of mainstream takeaway was immediately, oh, the Republicans didn't get any big gets, you know, they were, they, they swung and missed and it's, you know, this just shows that they're, they don't know what they're doing. And there was a fair amount of grandstanding because of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene was part of this hearing. So of course there would be grandstanding, but a couple of things that struck me, one was when, uh, Yoel Roth, the, the former, uh, you know, trust and safety guy for Twitter said unrestricted free speech paradoxically results in less speech not more which i think is a is a kind of perfect encapsulation of the of the way that that the progressive left now understands speech which is we need to control more of it so that the things we all think are good for people to hear can be heard the most and the things that we know to be bad because as a, as educated elites we know what's right the best thing for everybody those things can be suppressed so there was absolutely no um no humility with regard to their views on free speech what you did see some whether it was real or or um faux i don't know but there was a lot of humility about oh we did wrong if we could go back we wouldn't suppress the new york post story or if we did we would reinstate it immediately now we've learned our lesson of course um, there was a lot of dissembling. There was a lot of deliberate misremembering, a lot of I do not recalls. And the reason they did that, I think, was to protect themselves legally from whatever might be coming down the pipeline. But we know for a fact, because of what was released with the Twitter files, that a lot, a lot of the activities that were called conspiracy theories on the right, particularly with regard to Twitter, the shadow banning, which they call visibility filtering, 
this stuff was going on. It was heavily weighted in favor of people on the left versus the right, which doesn't mean it wasn't going on on the right. Donald Trump was also requesting that they take down unflattering things. So this was both sides did try to get the platforms to do stuff, but it was the left that was more successful in getting Twitter to do its bidding. So that said, I don't think there was anything really dramatic. I, I, we had a kind of disagreement on text about, um, whether the Democrats are really showing him, you know, oh, Jamie Raskin really knows his stuff. He's showing him what's what. No, Jamie Raskin tried to make this about January 6th. So he brought on someone who hadn't even been around on Twitter when the Hunter Biden stuff was going around to do her January 6th shtick, which she did. And she even miscited the, the you know, shouting fire in a crowded theater standard. So like she didn't, she was just there as a kind of political pawn. But it is, it, it's just notable that this is just Twitter and people should remember Facebook did this too. Facebook was much bigger. It claimed a, a Democratic operative who made some of these decisions on the Facebook side, a guy named Andy Stone, um, who then who was hired by Facebook. He he said he was going to fact check stuff. There were all these promises made to to explain the suppression of of the Hunter Biden laptop story in particular. Um, and we still don't know what really happened inside Facebook. What was revealed with Twitter is kind of what we were shown uh, through the the releases of the Twitter files. So it wasn't, I didn't, there was no big surprise. I thought AOC did her typical ridiculous grandstanding again, um, which I just, I find the Democratic grandstanding is annoying on substance as I do the Republicans. So I kind of, they're both awful. Um, well, I have, to, I have just to jump yeah. in for a second, I have to say, I think AOC did the worst thing, um, which is that she's still describing the laptop story yes. as partially false. Yes. She spread disinformation well, Daniel in a congressional Goldman, hearing. <laughs> right. Disinformation, so, sorry. so Daniel Goldman, who was the uh, impeachment counsel, who is now a congressman from from uh, Manhattan, um, uh, went at Comer, uh, the chairman of the committee, and said, you have this New York Post cover up there. And the New York Post story is wrong. And he said, it's wrong because the New York Post first paragraph says something about how uh here here's this laptop and th thus and such happened and then pointed something out about a trip the trip that biden took to about firing the prosecutor and how the story was wrong now i i, I wasn't following the details on this but that wasn't why the story was suppressed the story wasn't suppressed because the story got something wrong about what happened with Joe Biden and Ukraine in 2015. The story was suppressed on the claim that it was it was uh, peddling disinformation. Yeah, it was a Russian the laptop was a Russian intelligence effort. Well, no, that's where the disassembling. We are now going to adopt the standard that these platforms which are not supposed to edit anything according to section 230 they are merely trans they are merely transmitter points for content they are not editors of content that's this is a very important thing here because section 230 has indemnified them against being held responsible for the material that is on their site on the grounds that they are not a publisher once they start make picking and choosing what is and is not acceptable for you to read, they effectively become a publisher. And I don't know how long that Section 230 standard is going to last. But here's the thing. they It was an interesting gambit because it's like, okay, well, this New York Post story was, you know, got was was wrong about Biden and why he fired, why the prosecutor got fired. So what? 
even if you believe that that is true, it doesn't matter because that wasn't why Twitter did what it did. And they and didn't, if you're going to and- retrofill and say, well, the New York Post was irresponsible, like Noah would say, you should ban the New York Times fact check on Joe Biden because well, it's irresponsible. They, they were being briefed. But, well, we know the Facebook meta, sorry, meta was being briefed by the FBI in the run up to that to the story about potential Russian disinformation, um, you know, hacks and leaks and all this stuff. And it's certainly plausible. This is where the, all the weaseling around the the answering the questions started to become interesting is that, you know, Baker, a former FBI guy and Yoel Roth, they're all like, oh, well, we don't really have a ton of direct contact right before this. You know, it's basically they're saying the FBI didn't make us do it. But if you look at what came out in the in the Twitter files, um, at all, all of that information, it certainly does paint a fairly persuasive picture that they were if not doing the bidding of the FBI, certainly taking the FBI's claims at face value and even against their own internal um, you know, policies and guidance with regard to who could do what and say what about, you know, uh, online, they were obviously inconsistent. I mean, I do think some of the stuff the Republicans pulled, like, look, yeah, they left up the Ayatollah Khomeini's tweets, but they took down Donald Trump. I mean, the inconsistencies have always been present. And the existence of the shadow banning, calling it visibility filtering doesn't mean that the end result isn't the same as shadow banning. They did that. And they they kind of want to get around any responsibility for it. But it was notable, I thought, that Elon Musk um, commented on one of the statements that Yoel Roth made about how, oh, well, you know, perhaps there were filters placed on particular politicians. We don't really know. And Elon Musk is like, yes, you do. You put those filters on there. So there's a there was just a lot of mealy mouth weasel words going on among that panel of witnesses when people were saying that there was shadow banning this is under the obviously the regime that is not Musk's regime twitter denied that any such thing existed remember like it was a publicly traded company that they were they were they were literally peddling false information about their own behavior that is a potential SEC yeah that's a matter that would have been a matter for the SEC to take up like that that is not you know they are they were materially harming the dissemination of content on their site for reasons that had nothing to do with making sure that their stockholders were seeing the greatest value out of their out of their stock necessary and then and then and then they were not being honest about their be corporate but, conduct. So, but this is what I think in a kind of broader cultural sense, what everyone should take away from, from this hearing is, is an understanding that they would also probably argue there was nothing wrong with doing that because this kind of in, in, in a brief, this brief moment of hearings really drove home to me just how the blue state cultural elite thinks about free speech thinks about conservatives, thinks about um, the the value of free speech versus the value of this vague idea of safety, right? That was brought up a lot. You know, AOC and Yoel Roth got to have this, you know, kind of earnest exchange about how horrible libs of TikTok is. I mean, they really do feel like they know better in terms of what Americans should say and see and read. And that is a problem in a country that has a robust First Amendment. And that's, I think, where they didn't try to hide their views. They were pretty clear about that. And that's disturbing to me because unfortunately, especially among younger Americans, that's becoming a more popular sensibility. You still see it on Twitter now. People calling for censorship. 
you know, like like pinging Musk and whomever else saying you're going to allow this. You're going to allow that. You're going to allow, you know, they want they want the big hand to come in and 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 scoop these offensive people away from them. This is maybe uh, yeah. the most startling change in my lifetime that uh, the left progressives, liberals have become, you know, sort of enemies of unfettered free speech. I'm not, by the way, a supporter of unfettered free speech. I want you know, it's a much more complicated question, um, uh, you know, but. Um, you know, 1987, Tipper Gore says, I don't want my daughter hearing, you know, my daughter is coming home with this Prince record that has these really disgusting lyrics. And I'm like, this is awful. And the entire cultural establishment of the United States comes down like a ton of bricks on her head on the grounds that who is she and she's suppressing speech and all that. And that was the, le you know, from the from the thirties onward, from the, from the uh, end of the ban of on Ulysses in 1933, which had been banned in Boston and various other places for being a work of, uh, you know, pornography uh, through the, you know, through the sixties and Lolita and various other things through, you know, basically the late nineties, uh, the idea was that Democrats or liberals or progressives were the, at, were the defenders of unfettered speech well, and the then, cultural left Not yeah the cultural Democrats. left it was, it was it was maybe the defining quality of the cultural left because they were the countercultural left now they're no, just no, the no but this was left. before the counterculture like this was this was like you know great books were being banned lady chatterley's lover ulysses this and that this was babbitts and you know and uh, and you know horrible censors who were just trying to suppress art and this this was you know calling picasso a pornographer and this was not you know th these were this was the ultimate in what progressivism was was in, 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 outside of mere you know political policies that's what that that's what they stood for and then Foucault, like it's a whole story but i mean then this idea came abroad that the dominant culture controls speech and 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 like creates the narratives and the terms under which we function and our vocabulary is corrupted and nothing means anything and therefore you know bad things are free speech is not real because uh people are unconsciously serving the masters of capitalism or what it's a whole you know, uh, structuralist, postmodernist thing, decades of of the academy end up having the most educated people in the country saying there is no such thing as free speech anyway, because it's all just serving our, po you know, our neoliberal capitalist masters and uh, false history of the West and all of that. It's a huge change. It is, this is a, a theme total I wrote about in my in my book, you in did. my last book. You did. <laughs> you think you can identify the the inception of the countercultural left in the 1950s and the beatnik culture and became the countercultural left in the 1960s. And they were outside of institutions. They were outside of culture. They were banging on the door trying to get in. Now they are in command of the commanding heights of culture. They every they are command the arts and not just the arts as in making products. They command artistic institutions. Mm -hmm. um and and to say nothing of institutions of higher education and just about every other 
culture pr producer of culture mass media and cultural products in that regard so they're the, they're the gatekeepers whether they understand that or not consciously they behave as though they are the gatekeepers and oh they understand it i mean with a with a conservative predilection never understood them to be in command of the cultural commanding right. heights but they were in command of what it meant to be an american they had the ability to set the standard of what uh, americanism was and were uh, jealous stewards of of that conception and are no longer no i mean i think Joel roth made it very clear that he he's a gatekeeper and that's what's interesting because the Communications Decency Act of 1996 or whatever, 95, 96, the whole idea was that they weren't supposed to be gatekeepers. They were supposed to be transmission points, transmission vectors. Because if they're gatekeepers, then their choices are choices that people should be able to question and maybe bring you know bring legal action to bear when they are no law when they are so, when they are being interrupted but this so part of this is the way that these platforms developed and scaled up very quickly which is that they didn't understand that content moderation was going to become the problem it was at scale as quickly as it did and so they are they they are constantly on the back foot trying to solve this problem. And I do actually have some sympathy for for the people in this business who in, in the big tech social media platform business in particular, because it's an impossible job given the amount of content. But they are there are some new and fairly novel legal theories being tested to do just that, John. There's there's a lawsuit in um, California that's suing an algorithm that's, you know, mm -hmm. the, the um, you know, algorithm, search algorithms, Google, whatnot. There was a case in the UK that Meta, Face, Meta Facebook lost because they were sued um, by a family whose child had committed suicide and they claimed the algorithm there was pushing all this content that actually contributed to the emotional state that led to the suicide. Now, UK law is different, um, but they did win. They lost that case. Meta lost that case. And so there's a there's a real sense now that they are going to have to answer for more of this stuff, even if Section 230 stays exactly where it is. Lawyers are and, and people who feel like these are harmful yeah. things are going to start looking for ways to kind of make them accountable. Uh I just, you know, yeah. And so we we I think in the end when they're on the back foot, what they what they do then is try to uh get themselves out of trouble. So 2017, the trouble for them was you got Trump elected. And A, a lot of them probably felt that people who worked there felt that they got them elected. But if you were Zuckerberg or anybody, the person, the per, the people who frightened you was liberal opinion and so you wanted to basically go to them and you know plead for mercy and say we're gonna what can we do so that you won't be mad at us anymore and then they get conservatives mad at them and they have much less incentive in their own world in their own bubble to do something about it but they have to do something about it like they also know that this is not a good thing and so that's when that's why this is not a workable system of accountability and why yeah so section 230 is there there hasn't been the massive there hasn't been a massive test of section 230 you know what i mean i mean there they they i don't know what the test would be because you have to show the harm right in order to so, but i mean there is a law that says that as long as they are not 
you know, content, as long as they're not editing, as long as they are not responsible for the words that go in on their sites, they can't be sued for the words that are on their sites or the things that are on their sites. I'm, I'm unaware of the fact that there has been a major effort to test Section 230 in that sense, where there is actually a case, you know, a test case, a scopes case, whatever, you know, a, a, a version of the scopes case or the Griswold case or something like that, where you have this, there is a law, here is a harm that is, ha you know, and then because if that happens, then social media, of course, if they are actually found liable, it's a little like you know tobacco companies found being found liable there, for cancer. Well, there is there's a there are there's a yeah. case that's going to come before the Supreme Court that re with regard to um, anti-terrorism laws and how whether or not algorithms drove uh, people towards radicalizing content. So that's and I and I'm right. I, I apologize I don't know all the details, but that it, there, again there are cases working their way through federal and and state courts that actually again they it will affect section 230 ultimately if enough of these cases come to some sort of legal consensus about what these platforms are allowing to happen based on in this case algorithms and design choices yeah but don't look don't don't mistake the fact that facebook went through this massive and very confusing evolution into meta uh, you know, whenever that was two years ago, it's very confusing. You can't make sense out of it uh, exactly what they thought they were doing. I think that Zuckerberg, they were planning their exit from social media as we understand it. They want basically wanted to turn themselves into a gaming, into a VR gaming platform because they saw the writing on the wall with what they are now. But you, would, you have point, the same you have the same issues on with uh on vr gaming platforms i mean they're they're you know like network uh like terrorists use them to you know exchange messages you know in code and stuff i mean well, fair enough but you know what i'm saying is that is that is that they will no longer be if i'm right about this they would no longer be defined as a bulletin board you know as a as, as the as the world's bulletin board um, and again, they, perhaps you know, in you the know. West, but they're not going to change what they're doing in non-Western countries, okay. which is where most of their users are. Fair enough. Okay. I don't know. I'm just saying that there's all kinds of weirdnesses where they were changing their identities very fast. Google became alphabet. There's a lot of stuff that was going on that are, that were penumbras and emanations suggesting that they have a real sense that their free ride on the first, you know, their free ride on not. Uh, you know, uh, not being held responsible for what is what appears on their platform is coming to an end and they need to diversify or change their businesses before before their liability becomes almost, you know, well, they, unthinkably they, large. They did try to do this uh, a few years before that by saying machine learning, you know, AI is going to solve the content moderation yeah. thing. Facebook in particular was like, oh, you know what? We understand this is terrible. So AI is going to fix this and flag everything that's bad. Of course, the AI has not been yeah. consistently as good as they hoped. Well, we got to go. Uh, I we wanted to talk about some 2024 stuff, but I guess we'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, and I'm sorry for the lateness of this podcast. We had some scheduling. It's my fault. It's totally my fault. I take full responsibility. <laughs> See, and there you are. It's section 230 holds you harmless, <laughs> nonetheless. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>